Good evening. Well, the front page of today's Daily Telegraph gave us the overnight news that Professor Andrew Pollard, chairman of the Joint Committee for Vaccination and Immunisation, had said fourth jabs should not be offered until there is more evidence. He also said we need to target the vulnerable in future rather than to everybody. Well, when I saw that, I thought this very much backs up what I was saying here last week. I was discussing my reluctance to have the booster on the basis that if I accept this third jab, there'll be a fourth jab of the spring and a fifth jab. And where will it all end? And it began to make me think, well, actually, having the booster just doesn't stop you from catching COVID. It may well, looking at the evidence, make you less ill, but it doesn't stop you catching it and it doesn't stop you spreading it. So I was quite pleased to see that from Sir Andrew Pollard this morning. But at five o'clock today, the Prime Minister had a press conference where once again he pushed really hard for boosters. And that's because there are either side of 10 million or so people out there that have just not had the booster. Now, this despite today's figures, a new record for 218,000 confirmations of COVID, most of them, of course, Omicron. And there are some hospitals that are under real pressure. But I also thought today in Johnson's statement, there was a threat, a veiled threat, when he said needing a booster to be able to travel abroad will likely become the norm in the coming weeks. Well, that's certainly something the European Union want to do. So in the light of all of this, should we keep boosting? Should the emphasis be on boosters as opposed to treatments? I have to say, I'm open-minded, but I'm still not convinced we're going down the right course. And I thought Sir Andrew Pollard very much backed up my view. Now, you can tweet your views, and this is new. It's a change. It's hashtag Farage on GB News. Also, you can follow us today for the first time on DAB Radio. So if you're in your car and it's got a digital radio, you can listen to this show as well as seeing it. Well, joining me to discuss should we keep boosting is Professor Robert Reed, Professor of Infectious Diseases at the University of Southampton and member of the JCVI. But you're speaking to us tonight, I believe, in a personal capacity. Good evening. And welcome to the show. Good evening. Uh, do you understand why we do see a slight contradiction here? That we're being told by the government that getting the third jab, getting the booster, is absolutely vital. It's the only thing that will save us. And yet, you know, we have a very senior man in Sir Andrew Pollard saying when it comes to a fourth jab, maybe we should just hold our horses. Maybe we should just think about vaccinating the vulnerable rather than everybody over the age of 12. Do you understand, when you see those slightly contradictory arguments, why there are 10 million or so people still reluctant to get the booster? Uh, well, thank you. Um, well, Sir Andrew's right. It's always essential to look hard at the data. And one of the things that the JCVI does is it vaccinates when it's necessary to do so, and it doesn't vaccinate when it's not necessary to do so. That's what you would expect an advisory body 
to advise. Uh, in, in, in this case, Andrew is completely correct. We need to look really hard at what's happening now in our hospitals, in our communities in the UK, before we go for a fourth booster uh, in particular parts of the population, for example, the very vulnerable, the very elderly. Yeah. There's no doubt that the booster program that was instituted late November, early December, in a hurry, uh, has saved an awful lot of people from getting extremely unwell. And we're seeing that now in real time. Uh, and that has always been the objective of the vaccine program, is to stop people from getting unwell. And the problem at the moment as you've seen, is that there's an awful lot of virus about and we really need to stop people getting unwell in the best way we can. And actually, the booster has already shown that it achieves that objective. OK, Robert, I understand the argument you're making about those that have had the double vaccine, the booster, uh, when they contract the virus, becoming less ill. Uh, and perhaps if the emphasis stayed on that, people might be, you know, those 10 million might be listening far more attentively. But the idea that's given again and again is that if we get the booster, we're protecting our friends and family. And actually, that's just not true, is it? Because whether you've had the booster or not, you can still very clearly catch the Omicron variant and pass it on. Why do these arguments keep getting made if they're simply not true? Well, they, they are. It, it is certainly true that a booster, relative to just having two doses, reduces your chances of acquiring the virus. I mean, the data on that is clear. It's not an is absolute. It? Is it? Well, share it with us, please. Share it with us. <laughs> the, the, the data quite clearly shows that uh, a booster gives you a differential greater impact on likelihood of becoming infected and transmitting compared to two doses. It's not an absolute effect, you're quite right. If you've had the booster, there's a chance you could still acquire the virus uh, if somebody infects you. Um, but on the other hand, relative to whether you hadn't had a booster, there is still an effect. So across the population, that does have an impact. When you consider that millions of us are now gonna get infected with Omicron, uh, then just a small change has a tremendous impact in slowing the progression of the virus into the more vulnerable population, which is what we're trying to do. But you're right. Ultimately, the biggest impact at the individual level uh, is that this vaccine, this booster, will stop you getting extremely unwell. And that's really what, what the, the big message to, the, to your viewers uh, uh, is. OK, well... Fine. And I've heard the message very clearly. I still I still go back to this question. And I, Robert, I keep asking everybody that comes on about this. You know, show me some evidence. Please show me some actual evidence that having the booster makes me less likely to catch Omicron and pass it on. And and so far I get warm, reassuring words, but there's no real evidence. There's no real data that I've seen. 
Well, the, the data is elaborate, of course, but it's, uh, uh, it's, most of it is already in the public domain. Uh, there's a reduction in 90% in your chance of having extreme disease if right. you're infected. That's there's a currently a reduction in about, at about 60% in you getting symptomatic infection. And there's a reduction approximately of about 40% in your chances of acquiring infection uh, if you uh, see the virus. Now, those levels of protection will wane over the next few weeks, as it does with all vaccines. Uh, but it's reassuring that extreme illness is prevented by 90% okay. in people who have been boosted. What, now, what do you say all vaccines? Sorry, I mean, I've had a measles jab and I've had a, B, I've had a BCG uh, jab against tuberculosis. I've never had to have those boosted. They are very different forms of vaccine. Uh, they are very different. They're both live vaccines. We generally don't boost with live vaccines uh, at a regular level. And of course, they're old established infections. The difference with this disease is that it's a very new virus infection. Uh, we yeah. don't have any memory to the components of the virus that we, uh, we've never seen the virus before. So we're having to vaccinate and then boost people in a hurry to get on top of it. So it's a different problem to, to, to the live vaccines such as measles okay. and BCG. Professor Robert Reed, thank you very much for joining us here and making the arguments on GB News. Now, joining me now is Dr. Asher Salman, Deputy Director General of the Israeli Ministry of Health. And we're delighted that you're able to join us here in London this evening. Good evening. Now, the reason I want to talk to you is because I know that you as a government have been very, very pro the vaccines and pushing them very, very hard. Uh, but now you're announcing that there has to be a fourth vaccine, a second booster, uh, because you've got large outbreaks of cases. And I, I just wonder, um, doesn't this rather prove the point that actually, uh, you know, we're, we're debating the booster here, the third jab at the moment, but doesn't your situation rather prove the point that this isn't really working very well? It is not working in a sense that we would expect, you know, give two jobs and that's the end of this pandemic. No, it's not the case. Unfortunately, as Professor Reed said, it's a new type of infection. Our system, our immune system is not constructed to handle it yet. And unfortunately, we see ourselves giving another boost now. Now, keep in mind that Israel gave the third boost like three or four months before the UK. And we are now reaching six yeah. months or more after the third boost, and we actually started to boost now for the fourth time, uh, mostly the vulnerable population. And are you seeing people becoming more reluctant as you advocate jab after jab after jab after jab? It is. It makes sense. We all get fatigue. I mean, you see this type of pan-social fatigue from this pandemic, from jobs, from bad stories, from all restrictions. And it's not easy to convince people to go and get the fourth job. I was I'm quite sure. amazed to see how many old people were standing in line today to receive the job. It means that we somehow deliver the message that it is safe and it is beneficial for this population. So when would you estimate, Dr. Salmon, when would you estimate the fifth jab to be? I hope never, but I can't say. 
It depends how this pandemic would develop. I mean, I, I was predicting a year ago that it would end toward sometime during uh, 2022. Maybe yeah. I'll be wrong and foolish. And in a point, this pandemic will end. It's not a lifetime pandemic. Usually it takes two to three to four years, and that's the end. I hope after the fourth job, we will develop enough, I would say, I would, uh, a resilient enough immune uh, response. And in that sense, hopefully that would be the end for, for a while at least. It may be that we would give it with the flu job every autumn. You know, it would be combined in the same job and uh, all of us would get it exactly as we get the flu jabs now. Do you feel some sense, given that you're on this fourth jab, do you feel some sense of disappointment at the effectiveness of the vaccine, the fact that, uh, you know, the figures that I saw, are, you know, 10 weeks after the booster, two-thirds of its efficiency had gone. Do you feel a slight sense of disappointment about this? Well, the last point you were mentioning is mostly the antibody level. It's not the clinical yeah. benefit. And it makes sense. Of course, I feel a sense of disappointment. We all had this real hope that, you know, the jobs would come and that would be the end of the story. But it seems that it's not a unilayer solution. The jobs, I mean, vaccines are maybe the most important layer that we have, uh, but then we need other layers. And we need, of course, uh, physical distancing in the proper places, and we have to take reasonable steps in order to pass, I do believe, the next few months, and hopefully that will be the end. And how bad is the infection breakout in Israel right at this moment in time? Well, thanks to God, well, for us, not as bad as in the UK, but we do see a sharp rising in numbers. So we are in thousands now. We were like 200 cases in November a day, and now we're around five, 6,000. We'll see more. I don't know if we'll reach the level of the UK, but yeah. certainly Omicron is a quite a challenge. I'm not necessarily by developing some masses of severe patients, but rather this massive spread, quick spread, uh, among the whole, I mean, whole section of our society, and that that takes a price. Thank you very much indeed for updating us on the fourth jab in Israel. That was Dr. Asher Salmon, and yep, there you are. He believes the fourth jab. He hopes that'll be the last one. Well, coming up, we're going to talk about the reality of the price you pay for your energy. What green taxes? are doing to your bills at home. I've been banging on about this since 2013. At last, it's out there in the public domain. We're about to tell you where some of your money is being spent. Before we get to green taxes and where your money is going, some response to the should we keep boosting question. Paul on Twitter says there will come a time when people will just get bored of the whole booster thing and nobody will hardly turn up. Well, one of the reasons that Johnson did the press conference today is they've gone from massive numbers being boosted. And that was after the press conference when Johnson said this was an emergency and up to a million a day we're going to get the booster, and that is now down in below 100,000. Scarlett says, I've had the first and second jabs plus the booster. I'm still having restrictions placed on me and still having to wear a mask. Why should I keep getting boosted with no foreseeable benefit? Anne says, perhaps we should have a yearly booster like they do with flu jabs. 
natural immunity will build up, won't it? Well, maybe the best natural immunity, funny enough, is actually to catch Omicron. Uh, not that I'm particularly keen to get it, but maybe in a way it is. Another viewer, Anon, says, as long as there are people who can't abide by rules, then unfortunately, yes, because cases will continue. And that is a dig at those that have not had any vaccines yet. Mike says, no, not if you have contracted COVID and then recovered after two vaccines. So there's the argument. You've had a double vax. You've had COVID. You've got the antibodies. Why on earth do you need a booster? Now, energy. I've been talking about energy prices since the first day I started here at GB News. I've been talking about green subsidy since 2013, but not that many people really wanted to listen. Well, now they do. And joining me to discuss all of this is journalist and author Ross Clark. Ross, good evening. Good evening. Hi. Uh, share with us briefly the concept of constraint payments, please. Yeah, well, constraint payments are payments which are made to the owners of wind farms, mainly, um, when the wind is blowing too strongly, um, funny enough. Um, <laughs> we've got so many wind turbines now that the, the national grid can't cope with all the electricity that they're generating. When um, So you know, we're paying sort of, you know, millions of pounds a year to compensate wind farm owners to turn their turbines off when it gets too windy. I, well, I shouldn't well, we have laugh, no means really. of storing this energy. I shouldn't laugh, really, Ross, because actually a lot of people are going to struggle like crazy uh, to pay their bills. And there are going to be some very big shocks to people in the spring when the bills come, plus the tax increases. And, Ross, I'm pushed for time, but I must quickly ask you about this. In his party conference speech last year, Boris Johnson talked about perhaps up to 30 percent of the British countryside being re wilded. What does that do? <laughs> well, the idea is that, you know, we return it to peat, bog and woodland and it absorbs carbon and so on. But at the same time, it's taking a lot of land out of um, agricultural production. And some of the same people who advocate rewilding on another day, they'll be complaining about food miles and saying we all got to eat local food. And of course, they're not connecting the two things and thinking that um, oh. rewilding is actually making it harder to eat locally produced food. Dear, oh dear, oh dear. Ross Clark, great work. Keep up the great work. Come back and see us again soon. And thank you for sharing that with us. Now, a subject that I've covered pretty relentlessly over the course of the last couple of years, I guess more than anything, to try and wake up people as to the truth and to get other media channels to cover a story they weren't very keen on, are the channel crossings. Well, we're very lucky here at GB News because we have Mark White here as our Home Affairs and Security Editor. And, Mark, you've been in Dover Harbour today. I would guess you were the only media person there. Um, what's been happening? Uh, yeah, there were a few photographers, I think, from the newspapers, but I couldn't see any other television cameras uh, here in Dover today. I think I'm shortly going to be uh, given the freedom of uh, Dover. I've been here so many times uh, in recent months. But uh, yes, again today, uh, it was a significant day because it was the first uh, small boats to make uh, the crossing uh, from France to the UK 
uh, in 2022. Uh, a number of small boats, we don't know exactly how many, but I counted at Dover 71 migrants uh, in two separate uh, boat landings there, and uh, not boats uh, that landed in, in Dover, but certainly the uh, Dover lifeboat uh, landing, uh, a number of migrants, 35 at 10.30 this morning, and that was followed a few hours later by the border force vessel Hurricane that came in with 36 migrants on board. So 71 today that I counted in Dover. Uh, we don't know if there were any others elsewhere that uh, we've missed, but significant, I think, Nigel, that uh, there was only really a window of a few hours where it was just about passable in the in the channel to push these small boats uh, out from northwestern France and that's exactly what the uh, people smugglers did to uh, put uh, these boats out from beaches in the Dunkirk area uh, across to uh, the UK and a few of them made it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's been blowing a hooli for the last week and it was literally just a few hours, wasn't it, when the wind was down to about 10 miles an hour. Now, we've had, over the course of the last few days, the official figures for those that were stopped crossing the channel or found on the beaches. We have no estimates for those who landed on beaches and got away. An official figure for last year, 28,300, treble what the number had been in the previous year. Um, from what I can see, Mark... There is absolutely no disincentive whatsoever uh, for this to continue this year. Uh, do you have, and I, I'm putting you on the spot here, you haven't got to answer, do you have any idea of what the scale of this might be in 2022? Well, I think it's going to be significant. I mean, it would not surprise me if we got uh, to the point where there were uh, double the number of migrants crossing uh, by the end of this year uh, yeah. as compared to last year, so up towards 60,000 or so. Um, it wouldn't surprise me at all. We've got, of course, the Borders and Immigration Bill uh, that uh, will soon come into law, and that's going to have, uh, we're told, a maximum life in prison for people smugglers. But that's not going to be any real disincentive for them uh, from a criminal enterprise that nets them thousands of, uh, or millions, I should say, of euros uh, on weeks where it's good enough to put uh, a good yeah. few boats into the water and across to the UK. Uh, and the other issue, of course, within this bill, they say that those claiming asylum will go to the back of the queue. Well, that doesn't mean that they're going to be returned to France or whatever. It just means that they have even longer to wait uh, before they find out whether no. or not they, they get asylum. So is that really a disincentive for them? No, it's not at all, and we'll keep on following this story. Mark White, thank you for your report from Dover Harbour this evening. Well, it'll be at least 60,000 this year, maybe near 80,000, unless something changes. But I don't see any great prospect of that. And it's one of the reasons why Boris Johnson is now 16 points behind the Labour Party in the red wall seats. Now, talking of the Labour Party, my What the Farage moment, Sir Tony Blair, now Downing Street, have insisted that Tony Blair's knighthood was a matter for the Queen today, which seems most unusual. After nearly 600,000 people have signed a petition calling for it to be revoked, chiefly because of his role in the Iraq war, Number 10 denied that Boris Johnson had any input on the decision to elevate the former PM to the Order of the Garter, which, of course, is one of the highest honours 
in the land. But the spokesman also appeared to endorse the move, pointing out every other ex-premier before Satoni had either joined the order or the Scottish equivalent. Sir Keir Starmer, who did actually oppose the war in Iraq in 2003, said, I don't think it's a thorny issue at all. I think he deserves the honour. Obviously, I respect the fact that people have different views. And that is Keir Starmer aligning the Labour Party very much more with Tony Blair than with Jeremy Corbyn. And I don't know, for 600,000 people to sign a petition asking for it to be revoked shows you it has provoked much anger. But typical, number 10, nothing to do with us, Gov. Please put all the blame on the Queen. Well, what else would you expect, really? My other What the Farage moment is parking tickets. Drivers are being handed an average of more than 22 1,000 tickets every day by private parking firms, according to new research. Companies issued 4 million tickets to British motorists between April and September of last year. That news was put out by the PA News Agency, and that's despite the pandemic and car use being 25% lower than pre-coronavirus pandemic levels. So this is an extraordinary rate of tickets, and I have to say uh, that if you do uh, come up and appeal against these private companies, they make life very, very difficult for you indeed. It's, it's, it's actually pretty unpleasant, the whole process. Now, in a moment, I'll be joined by somebody who, from nowhere, hit the front pages, hit the headlines back in 1988 in the most dramatic way. Opinions about him were very divided. I found the whole thing the most terrific fun. In a moment, on Talking Pines, the one and only Eddie the Eagle. Now, before I introduce face-to-face our guest this evening, I'm going to show you a clip from the Calgary Winter Olympics in 1988. And if you're too young uh, to remember it, well... Watch it, because it really was quite a moment in this country. Five meters, he's off first in the second and final round. Here on the 70-meter hill, the fans are going crazy for Eddie. They're saying, Eddie, Eddie, send down Eddie. And Eddie is uh, whooping it up up there. He's been waving to the crowd, starting the wave from the top position on the whole jump. Friends here, doing good things, and let's enjoy ourselves. On his way. That jump looks a little farther. I think he almost got the 60-meter mark. His first jump was 55 meters, so if he can have a longer one here. The cr- it really was. Eddie the Eagle, welcome to GB News and Talking Pines. <laughs> now... <laughs> As I say, for younger people who weren't around, they'll find this difficult to believe. But you were the centre of just some of the most, well, A, publicity on a scale. It was off the charts, wasn't it? Global. (laughs) (laughs) It was global. It was, it was. And and I remember one night at dinner getting into just the most heated, almost shouting match argument because... Some said you'd made a mockery of sport, you'd brought the Olympics into disrepute, you'd made us as a country look ridiculous. And others of us who were supporters, and I was one big time, said, look, you know, 
he's the best ski jumper we got, <laughs> which was true. Yeah. Yeah. But I said, it's an amateur sport yeah. and it's brought fun. Mm-hmm. It's people are watching the Winter Olympics who would never even have known they were taking place. Yeah. But it really was astonishing, wasn't it? It was. And feasts were very upset. They thought I was making a mock of the sport and bringing the sport in digital repute in the Olympics. So they banned me from international competition. They banned me from the Olympics. They banned me from the British team. Uh, and I was never able to jump again. So, yeah. Was, You're never uh, able to jump again? You no. Know, well, I, I, I trained for the 98 Olympics. But, uh, and even though I reached the qualification, they still turned around and said, nope. You're not jumping. And that was it. So I retired. So where did this love of skiing come from? What happened? I mean, you're from Cheltenham, aren't you? I am, yeah. Not not known for its Alps or its... No, but we do have one of the biggest dry ski slopes Ah. in the country in Gloucester. And that became my home. I went on a a school ski trip when I was 13 and I loved it. Of course, I loved watching Ski Sunday. Yes. Um, And then went on that first ski trip, loved it. And then Gloucester Ski Centre became my home. I was up there every night after school, all weekend, all school holidays. And skiing became all I ever thought about, talked about and dreamt about. But the... The link between skiing and, 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 and I mean, ski jumping. Where, yeah. where did that, where, is that, that was your way of getting in the Olympics, wasn't well, it? Well, it was, yes. I mean, uh, <laughs> Come I mean, on, fess I mean, up. Yes, I mean, originally I wanted to go as a downhill racer because I got into, once I started skiing, I got into slalom, giant slalom, super yep. G, that kind of thing. But at Gloucester, I used to do jumps because the, they had bumps. And if I hit the bump hard enough and fast enough, I could fly through the air and do all these tricks. Um, so I was quite comfortable flying through the air. And then I was in America racing, ran out of money, saw the ski jumps, and ski jumping was cheaper. It was costing me $250 a day to go ski racing, yep. but $5 a day to go ski jumping. So I could afford that. And so I studied ski. So it was purely an, eco- an economic decision. And then I worked my way up to the big jumps and, and qualified and uh, went to Calgary. I mean, in those days, you were Michael Edwards. This is before you became Eddie the Eagle. <laughs> That's right. Well, I was known as Eddie Edwards. My, Eddie's my nickname. Right, OK. Yeah. yeah. And who was funding all of this? Well, I was. And How? my dad. Uh, my dad is a plasterer. Yep. Uh, I'm a plasterer as well, so I'm not busy doing PR work. I'm busy plastering and things. Yep. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was that that, um, that funded my way. And, um, so I, you, I were, you were an amateur in absolutely the genuine... Absolutely. ...sense... Absolutely. Of yeah. the word. Yeah, I slept in cars, I slept in cow sheds, I slept in barns, I scraped food out of bins, I slept in a mental hospital when I was in Finland. <laughs> Anywhere that I could rest my you know, head to go to sleep, and then I got to the ski jumps. As long as I could carry on skiing and then ski jumping, that was my most important thing. And if it meant scraping food out of bins and sleeping in a barn, I would do it because I you just loved my it. skiing. Yeah, I was so passionate about my sport. You kind of fit into the sort of... Classic English eccentric, almost. I mean, somebody, no yes. somebody yes. who's absolutely fixated on doing That's it. That's right. There's an element of that, definitely. Yes. And you're out there in Calgary. You do the second jump, which was yep. an improvement on your first yeah. jump. Yeah. And no mishaps, no, no falls. I mean, fall I mean, you know, no, 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 no. You know, I mean, <laughs> some of the other lads did go a bit further. They did. Um, and weight-wise, you were towards the upper end of this, weren't you? Oh yes, yeah. Um, you know, I was a beginner when I went to Calgary. I'd been jumping for 22 months. Everybody else, though, had been jumping for 20 years. So of yes. course they were going to jump much further than me. Um, and I was still, you know, in that beginning stages. So you know, I was still, you know, losing weight. Um, yeah. But I was still probably eight, eight kilograms heavier than the other, the other guys. Um, but Which for me, the technique was the most important thing. That would get me further. And then I was losing weight gradually as I, as I carried on ski jumping. So, uh, uh, but yeah, everything was against me. Uh, but I, yeah, I still loved doing it. Were you, and, uh, I mean, were you a fantasist? 
I mean, did you just think you might just produce an amazing jump? Oh, I was always, always, yes. Because, you know, with ski jumping, <laughs> you could just pull off that amazing, hit it perfectly. So did you fly. think standing, we saw that clip, did you think standing there, I'm going to do this? Yes. And I was going to, I was going to jump further than Matty, who won the gold medal. Oh, it just, this makes the story better. <laughs> <laughs> the wonderful optimism yeah. of Adam. And I always thought one day I will, you know, I will jump further than Matty one oh, day, but it never, it never came. No, well, you've you got to have ambitions in That's life. right, got to have hope, got to have ambition. Yep. What happened when you came back? Oh, I came back to Heathrow. And I was waiting for my bags at the carousel and I had about 30 policemen come to me and they said, oh, we're here to help you through the airport because I thought they, they found drugs in my bag or something. <laughs> and they said, no, no, we're here to help you through the airport. And I went through, uh, went through the, 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 the sign and um, there must have been 10, 15,000 people and they were going mad and all this sort of thing. And, um, and then I was whisked to London, did the Wogan show, which yeah, was very which popular was back big then. Big news in those days, That's yeah. Right. And, uh, and then my feet didn't touch the ground for about three years. I was traveling all over the world opening shopping centres, golf courses, hotels, fun rides, doing TV shows, radio shows, all over the world. And you wrote a book. And I wrote the book, called, yes, that's on, right. Called On the Peace. That's right, and my story, Eddie the Eagle, my story, I did that one as well. So, uh, yeah, I just just took advantage of the fact that I got christened Eddie the Eagle, and it exploded. Yeah. And, of course, I wasn't allowed to ski jump. They wouldn't let me, so yes. the next best thing for me to do was to... Embrace that um, kind of celebrity, which you Eddie did, Eagle, and you I loved, did. and you loved it, and I did. I, oh, it was great fun. Travelling first class, earning ten thousand pound an hour. <laughs> Who wouldn't love it? <laughs> so it was great. I'm nearly earning as much as you. Get us to get out of it. <laughs> well, I guess it's better than plastering, isn't it? It was, but I still do my plastering. You know, every yep. once in a while, when things got low, didn't do much work, then I went back to my. My plastering was always my plan B, my, my default and, yeah. position. So I always had work. I always had. I was always able to pay the bills, but the, obviously the speaking and the TV and the PR work paid more. But when it when it died, then I had my plushing to fall back on. There are lots of people who, for all sorts of reasons, find instant fame. It happens, you yeah. know. They can be a pop singer, a yeah. footballer, whatever it is, and they find instant fame, and perhaps they suddenly start to make money that they. And you just said you had some amazing engagements and well paid. Mm. And did you have a good agent doing all this for you? Yes. Yeah, because yes. that's really important, yes. I guess. Yeah. A lot of people get into that situation, as I say, they make lots of money very quickly. Mm -hmm. This fame happens and yeah. they can't even go and buy a newspaper without being <laughs> recognised yeah. and I'll go to the petrol station or, hey, <laughs> okay. I know, because yeah. I was like the panto villain for a few years. So, yeah, I mean, I, I got some real, I got some love and I got some real I hate. bet you were a so, great villain. You know, I know what it's like. I do know, in a sense, what some of that's like, but... Mm. It often, it often ruins a lot of people. It often yes. wrecks a lot of people. You know, they yep. make loads of money, but they actually mm -hmm. finish up owing money. They lose it all. Yeah. Um, it wreaks destruction on their personal lives. How did you cope with it all? Um, it was, at first, it was great fun. Um, but then after a while, it did, it kind of got to me. Because if I wanted peace and quiet, I just had to stay in a hotel room, watch TV. Because the moment I went outside, I was bombarded. Um, yeah. And it was great at time. But the first, you know, the first couple of weeks, brilliant fun. But then it started to get a bit tiresome and all that kind of thing. Um, but, um, and I'm amazed that I'm as, you know, as popular now as I was 34 years ago. And I'm still busy and traveling all over the world and things. But it is, it is tough. Um, and I wouldn't wish fame on anybody, really. They think, oh, this must be fantastic being famous. But there are, you know, it's not a, it's, it's not something you can turn off and on. No, you can't um, just go for a quiet cup of tea. No, no. Or a quiet pint of cider or whatever it might be. That's yeah. right. It's with yeah. you all day, every day. Yeah. 
365 days a year. Um, and so you've got to be prepared for that. And what about the film? Oh, because, you know, this film was made and it actually grossed around the world. I mean, unbelievable. It grossed $46 million. Yeah. I mean, big... Big stuff. How did you feel about the film? Did you feel it was... Were they a bit demeaning to you, do you think? No, no, I thought they did a fantastic job. Because okay. I signed the deal to make the movie 22 years ago. Um, and the project just kept stalling. And, and then I did a, a TV show in the UK, um, Splash. Yes. And that was the impetus yes. to make the film. Yes. Um, but Taron Edgerton played me so well. Um, and, and I think they did a great job. It's about 90% true, but it only represents about 15, 20% of my life as a ski jumper. There was so much more yeah. that they could have put in the film, but they had to keep it down to a certain length. So what they did use, they did really well. I watched it. I, I enjoyed it. It, it still I makes me cry when I watch it. I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I, I, you know, it was yeah. great entertainment. Yep, yeah, it um, captured the heart and spirit and essence of my story, and it showed that, for me, the resilience, the tenacity, that never-giving-up spirit was my biggest tools in my tool bag. And optimism. An optimism. Boundless optimism. Yes. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And, uh, yeah, I loved it. I really loved it. And did you make any money out of this? My ex-wife did. Ah, <laughs> right. OK. <laughs> That's a very good answer. <laughs> yeah, she got all the movie money, but I've, I've done quite well off the back of it. You know, right. so, life, so life today for you is comfortable? Yep, yep. But you're still working? Still, still working. Still yeah. doing a bit of plastering? Yeah, well, COVID put a stop to my PR work. Yeah, uh, you know, my, my, my work just stopped immediately yeah. and it's starting to come back, but it's kind of stop, start, stop, start. But I'm still very busy doing talks all over the world, yep. um, talking about the Calgary Olympics and things. And then when I'm not busy doing that, I'm renovating a house. I've got permission to build two new houses in my garden, which I might do myself or I might just sell it with the planning permission. So... I'm always busy, I'm always doing something uh, and enjoying now, life. Now, tough question for you. Yeah. Winter Olympics coming up. <gasps> yeah, Beijing. Pretty much imminent. Yes. A few weeks' time. Yes. Um, I'm not sure what the British team's prospects are, but should the... <laughs> <laughs> but uh, <laughs> certainly won't get the publicity that 1988 got, no. I can assure you of that. No. Should we be going to the Winter Olympics, given the way China behaves? Um, I think it's good that the athletes are going. But maybe the, maybe it's right the officials shouldn't go. I mean, there's more there's three times more officials going than mm. there are athletes. I think mm. there's 150 officials, but only 50 athletes usually. Mm. Um, so I think the athletes should be going, but the, maybe the officials they they should be sort of showing some sort of we don't like what you're doing. Yeah. But at the same time, these athletes have been training for years and decades even, yeah. you know, to compete. And and why should they give up on their you know their hopes and their dreams of competing at the Olympics just because what China are doing? But I think. The officials, yes, let's let's form some sort of protest to say we don't like what we're doing, so we're not going to go, we're not going to support. So um, I think that's the best way. But and that's the, the balance. Go. That's yeah. the balance you yeah. think. That I would have be. been I would have been gutted if you know British Ski Federation turned around and said, "Well, you're not going because of what China are doing." And I said, "Well, you know, this is my life, this is my dream, and you know, why should I give up on that?" You know, so you know, yes, I don't like what China are doing, but this is my, you know, this is my career. And Do you avoid? Do you avoid Eddie? Do you avoid politics and current affairs? I mean, Most you, must, of the time. you must get asked a lot of times your opinions on various things. And... I do, but I'm, I tend to ignore a lot of the politics stuff and I, I just get on with my life, really. And... You just get on with yeah. doing Eddie the Eagle. Really, I don't do, you? I do. And well, I get on with my plastering as well and get on with Eddie the Eagle work. Property development, dancing, like so that. all the different yeah. things that are happening. Yeah, well, as long as it I... doesn't affect me, I'm happy. <laughs> can I just say, not only thank you for coming on Talking Pines. But thank you for... I think you've made a lot more people smile 
Yes. And that's what I wanted to do. Then you've upset. (laughs) And I think when books are written in years to come about, you know, the 20th century and extraordinary little moments, um, I think you've more than earned your place. Thank you. And it's lovely to see you and thank you very much. It's my round next time. It's on Eddie next time. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. OK, we're coming towards the end of the programme and it is time for Barrage the Farage, where you send in your questions and I answer them sight unseen. One viewer asks me, do you think Tony Blair should be knighted? Well, look, I'm not a great fan of Tony Blair um, and, in fact, you can see... Uh, that I think I can honestly tell you I'm the only person he really lost his temper and shouted at in public in the European Parliament way back in 2005. And, boy, I enjoyed that moment. Uh, I, I, too, was very opposed to the reasons we went into the Iraq war. Uh, I am disappointed that he's been knighted, but the point that's been made today, and it is a fair point, is that when it comes to this, every former Prime Minister gets offered it. And at some point in time, I'm afraid it was going to happen. But I get it. 600,000 people have signed a petition and they are damned angry and that won't dissipate in a hurry. And I thought Keir Starmer, Keir Starmer today, saying, yes, of course he should have it as a former Prime Minister, but Boris Johnson should never have it. So Keir, grow up. That did look a little bit churlish. Linda asks... How come you've not aged? Oh, Linda. I mean, what a wonderful thing to say. Um, You must have seen my video with Tony Blair in 2005. I've not aged because, well, I suppose years of clean living. Ha ha. Uh, Janet on GB Views asked, do you think this new borders and immigration bill will stop and even lessen illegal immigration? It will make no difference whatsoever. There are no disincentives to the criminal traffickers from bringing people across the English Channel. They will go on doing so, and sadly, many of them will finish up in effectively modern-day slavery. We should be hanging our heads in shame. David asks, what do you think the long-term future of Scottish politics is? Well, I think the SNP do well, because they seem to be a pro-Scottish party. The others are seen to be far too London-based. But when it comes to it, when the Scots look down the barrel at whether they're actually going to leave the United Kingdom. I don't believe they'll ever do it. But that's enough from me. I'm back tomorrow. Coming up next, it's Mark Stein.